I guess I would trace back to open source is that we want a world in which people are free to try to make things, uh, to make the vision that they want. It's not strictly speaking closed source or closed end. It's just like other people who are trying to keep you from that, that fundamental freedom. That's where I do really like a lot of what Richard contributed, this idea that these, there are fundamental freedoms, the freedom to create, the freedom to share. You know, these are human goals and human aspirations, and we should want to support that. In some ways, open source is, is, is one part of the science of what works about that. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Tim O'Reilly, founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media, a company which has profoundly impacted how generations of software engineers and computer hobbyists have learned programming. Tim is, of course, a luminary of the technology industry and hardly needs an introduction. It's difficult to overstate the importance of his contributions. Tim has been active in the open source and internet community for decades, providing the intellectual inspiration behind terms like open source software and Web 2.0. Our conversation with Tim centers around open source. We discuss the characteristics of open source software, which company has best executed on its open source strategy, and how the open source ethos has influenced the tech industry and beyond. We also covered Tim's latest project around algorithmic rents. Welcome, Tim. It's an absolute honor to have you here. We've been fans of your work. We would love to get started with what's your personal relationship with technology? That's an interesting question because, of course, I've been associated with technology for a, a good part of my life. It's sort of interesting because I do love technology and I, I love playing with it, but I'm really more of a, you know, by training and application, I'm much more of a, of a literature and philosophy guy when it really comes down to it. And I, I fell into computers and I fell in love with originally with the, the writing tools, quite honestly, of, of Unix and related systems, regular expressions and text editors, and particularly stream matters. The progression from in the in Unix from VI EX and VI to SED and OAK and then Perl shell programming. It was kind of like a very natural path for building power tools. In some sense, probably the computer book that probably most expresses my 
relationship to technology is a book I did in 1992 called Unix Power Tools, because I've always been a power user as opposed to like a professional programmer. The programming I've done has been you know, relative. I wrote an accounting system once in DBase 2 for my company in the early days. And I did, wrote lots of sample programs as part of documentation. And I ported lots of things in the days when you, you had to port Unix programs to get them to run on your particular machine. But I don't think I've ever written a, a, a true complex application from scratch. And so pe people give me credit for a lot of things. But I'm, I sometimes describe myself as somebody who can see the patterns in technology from the cheap seats. You know, when you're far enough away, you can, you can see more. And that was true both in terms of where I lived. I, li I didn't live in Silicon Valley. I lived up in Sebastopol, which is an hour north of San Francisco. So two and a half hours to Silicon Valley. So I was close enough to be part of it. But always peripheral and always seeing it from the outside in. And my original training in Greek and Latin classics, when I first, it was, was very relevant because when I started having to deal with computer documentation, it felt a lot like working with Latin or Greek manuscripts where you don't know all the vocabulary, but you know the structure of sentences and you kind of were able to go, well, this must be a noun, this must be a verb. But I literally, in the very beginning, when I was first, I literally got my first job writing a technical manual the day I saw my first computer as a digital equipment corporation. It was very, I wasn't like one of these kids who grew up. Yeah, I had my home computer and I was programming at the age of 12. I was 24 years old and I had a friend who got asked to, who was a programmer who got asked to write a manual. And I, I was thought of myself as a writer and I said, I'd help you out, help him out. One thing led to another. I did fall in love with computers. I mean, particularly again, I, the power to manipulate text. And, and that's why I think some of the current stuff with large language models is amazing, because that's sort of the, the continuation of kind of my journey with computers. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Anything in particular, Tim, that sparked your interest or curiosity in open source, which has been an area you've dedicated a lot of time to over the years? I was a Unix user. And I guess the thing that really got me going it was sort of a series of things. I already become sort of a public technology advocate, but that was mostly around the World Wide Web and the internet. I'd been involved in Unix and was using it. We used it for my business. I wrote a book called Unix Text Processing, which was originally for another publisher, but it actually took, included parts of our books on learning Unix and BI and said milk and so on. So it was very much wrapped up with my business, which was a, a technical writing consulting business. But then I've been fighting for the open web. So we started out, we probably created this site called GNN, the Global Network Navigator, which was the first web portal in late 92, early 93. And I came up with the idea of, of having it be ad supported. So I was the first person to do ads. Although my idea of an ad was what we now think of as a commercial website. When I we first started, the way you got information about products was these little bingo cards inside a magazine that you circled, I want to learn more about product 66, and I want to learn something else about product 92. And you mail it in, and then they send you a brochure in the mail. And I went, wow, the internet could make this so much easier. And since I was selling my books by direct mail, I thought, wow, this is great. We can just put up the information on the internet. So it was really the, the whole internet used guy and catalog was a catalog of non-commercial sites, but it started to be a catalog of commercial sites, which were paid. We sold to AOL 
But anyway, I, I went from that to, you know, we tried to create the first PC-based, we did create the first PC-based web browser because we thought, wait, this is getting owned by the big guys and as does the internet's becoming popular. So we created a product called Internet in the Box. And, and then Microsoft and Netscape started fighting over and trying to control uh, the internet. And, and I became an advocate for open internet standards. And then the next stage with open source was, you know, again, I was an active open source user but more from the internet tradition. And probably my next step was when I, in 96, when I decided to run to, to create a Perl conference. And, and that was inspired by, we had just started doing publishing about Windows as well. And we'd hired Andrew Schulman, who'd written a book called Undocumented DOS and Unauthorized Windows 95 to be our editor in that space. It was right when Microsoft had introduced something called ActiveX and they were running national television commercials. And Andrew said, you know, that ad that they're showing, everything in it, where they were kind of, was activate the internet, making dynamic web pages. And he said, everything in it was done with Perl, except that little taxi cab going across the screen in the ad, the little animated thing was, that's the only actual ActiveX piece of that. And I went, shit, nobody's actually getting how important Perl is. So I wrote a white paper called The Importance of Perl. And I thought, Perl ought to have a conference too. And it was our, our second edition of Programming Pro in 1996 was the best-selling computer book and nobody was talking about it. And I said, this will be a basically subsidized marketing for Pearl and a chance to bring the Pearl community together. So I brought the Pearl community together in 96. And then I was like, whoa, everything that I publish is like this. It's you know free software. And then in 98, I organized an event called the Freeware Summit because the term open source wasn't out there. And it was sort of interesting because I just had a, just a very different take on it than the dominant narrative that came from the Free Software Foundation, where it was a political movement. I had come into this world with a AT&T Unix, or really Berkeley Unix, which was under the aegis of a proprietary AT&T license, but the practices that we now think of as open source. And I look at how Unix was originally assembled. It was like, oh, this program came from Duke University. This came from Berkeley. This came from, and it was sort of like, I went, no, this is really much more about the internet than it's about licenses. What was coming to be called the internet at the time, it was more Usenet, dial-up, and then dial-up internet. But it was like this contributory community. And I saw that that contributory community flourished even in the presence of licenses that the free software orthodoxy said it shouldn't this shouldn't work. And in fact, yeah. it did. So anyway, so I was yeah. inviting together, not just people from the free software community, because that was just, you know, eventually it became Linux as the core, but it was the GNU project, which is really a re-implementation of, of all the Berkeley Unix utilities, you know, and it was GCC and, and Emacs. Yeah. And I was a VI guy. I preferred the two. <laughs> setting the base for open source. Thanks for providing us a preview of the inception from your point of view and your interest. How would you define open source? Well, let me just also say something about the way my mind works. I'm not a big believer in definitions. Definitions are an attempt to draw a boundary around a thing. And I find that most things have a core and it radiates out. And gravity is a better, is a good metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a set of things that are at the core of what we call open source. And one of them is access to source code. One of them is the ability to share source code with other people. 
the first freedom, you know, the freedoms that Richard Solomon outlines for free software, I think are really important. But I don't, but it's clear to me that those freedoms can flourish in even in the presence of restrictive licenses, if you have a big enough software population. Like one of the stories I used to tell was the, the origins of, what was it at Microsoft? I've now forgotten the name of the technology, but one of their, their big technologies, it was created by two engineers over Christmas just because they wanted to do something cool with the web. And it kind of spread like wildfire within this big company. I later coined the term gated source. It was a gated open source community. You know, like if you were in, in this particular company, then you had access and, and people adopted it, modified it. And eventually it came to Bill Gates notice and it became a big corporate initiative. I go, that's not that different from how Larry wrote Pearl for himself and his friends. And then more and more people found it. So I went, this is a characteristic of network communities and shared community of practice. and licenses may help to protect that, but they don't cause it. In fact, one of the things I, in, in the days when you know, everybody was trying to struggle through this, I said, look, there were all these sort of supposedly central open source projects that were floundering, like OpenOffice or even the GIMP. They never got wide adoption. I go, well, why is it? And they went, oh, actually, they don't have what I came to call the architecture of participation, the principles that made it possible for, for people to develop Unix independently. And Linus Torvalds told me once, I, I couldn't have done Linux with Windows, even if I had had access to the source code. The architecture wouldn't have supported it. In other words, you couldn't have a what was effectively a relatively small kernel added to Windows, whereas in Unix, the architecture of communicating programs was already there. And so writing a new kernel for it was a much smaller job. And that got me off on this idea of the architecture participation. And you saw it also back in the days when I was fighting over web server standards with Microsoft and Netscape, I kind of pointed out, look, there was a point where they're going, Apache isn't keeping up. They're not adding all these latest features. And I said, yeah, they're doing it a different way. They said, we do the web server layer and we have this extension layer and people are doing all that stuff on top of what we do. And that was also how Perl worked. There was CPAN, the, uh, yeah, the, the Perl archive network. I kind of saw that these effective projects had small pieces that you could connect together. Whereas if it was big, tightly bound spaghetti code like open office, just slapping an open source license on it wouldn't make it suddenly work. So I went, okay, licenses are, are much less central to the narrative. What's really central is the desire of people to collaborate. And then of course you see the continuum. If you talk about the gravitation extends out further, you go, well, now we have open access science publishing, which is also about more access to knowledge. That is pretty fascinating on how you define or not define open source, but the ethos, which is something very important to you. By the way, the book you were re referring to, is it the Unix programming environment? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the Unix programming environment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I read that growing up as part of my education. <laughs> so it, it is very interesting you mentioned Yeah, yeah. actually, if you go look at the Wikipedia entry for it, I wrote that. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I remember... Growing up and doing my bachelor's in India and reading the first book from you, which was around Pearl, which you talk about. Yeah. And I wondered back then as to like, you were a household name in the student community, if you will. Yeah, uh, no, it's true. And yeah, there was a time when I went, did a, an open source speaking tour in England. I remember my, my mother went with me and she was like, you're kind of like a rock star. <laughs> 
I like to say I've had my 20 minutes of fame, you know, the Andy Warhol 20 minutes of fame several times. But I, I do also say uh, my reputation exceeds me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe to sort of further flesh out what open source software means to you, Tim, how would you juxtapose that model of software production with other modalities? And the other modality really is closed source. So how would you juxtapose those two? How are the organizing principles different? So I would not actually agree with that statement. I, I just don't think that open source versus closed source is a terribly interesting distinction, particularly today. How so? Well, if you notice, I mean, again, it depends how you define open source or closed source. I remember Tom uh, Preston Werner, when he was the CEO of GitHub, gave a talk at OnusCon. He said, one of our big issues is nobody puts a license on the code that they put on GitHub. There's just no license. It's neither open source nor closed source. It's effectively open. And so I guess I would just sort of challenge you and go, okay, well, what are the interesting distinctions today? I mean, they're between code that, I guess, when I think about what's important, is the system intelligible? If you think about like the web as a uh, paradigm, you know, HTML uh, in its early days was had this feature that you could always view stores. So you could copy and paste somebody's website really easily and go, oh, I like the way that looks. I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna modify the code. Then it went through a phase where even though it was like that, it was obfuscated and everything became you know, JavaScript and the, the levels of, of, of depth in it that you had to go to be able to understand what was there made it effectively not possible for somebody to just take it and run with it as easily. So I think of, of there's a, a, an axis between, actually something Larry Wall said once, Larry Wall being the creator of Perl, said one of his goals for, for Perl was uh, that it was, it was kind of like the acquisition of human language. You could do baby talk in it and you could write a complex a PhD thesis in it. And there was a continuum. And we have a bunch of systems that are not intelligible unless you're an expert. And, and I think yeah. that's, for example, a much more interesting axis than open source or closed source. Like VBA, ordinary people could write Visual Basic for applications. Whereas there's a lot of stuff that's nominally open source, but it is, is so professional that it's less accessible. And so the same thing today in the age of AI, you have all this new accessibility of programming, this idea of low and no code solutions and stringing tools together. And I've always loved that idea of the accessibility of programming. Effectively, programming is speech with computers. It's how we tell them what to do. And the whole arc of computing is making that easier. It's like literally people used to program by the very beginning was you made a bunch of hardwired circuits. And then it was like you could input a program bit by bit using switches on the front of the computer. And then we got to assembly language that was starting to talk directly to the registers and, and so on. And then you had slightly higher level languages. And, and then you had compilers. And then you had scripting languages. To me, there was this huge breakthrough with the web, where for the first time, you actually built an interface with human-readable content. 
And then you embedded little bits of code back in 98 when I was talking about this. I, I, I called it Infoware at the time. I said, look, the difference between the web and something like, say, Microsoft Word is Microsoft Word has little bits of human language embedded in a lot of code, whereas a web application has a little bit of, has callouts to the code embedded in human language, this inflection point. And I think right now we're at another inflection point where with machine learning, we're a whole other level of abstraction. Like you can literally just talk to Midjourney about the picture you want to create. And I say, no, 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 not that. And again, there's a, sure there's a point like interface, but we are getting closer and closer to a world where the machines have learned to, to understand our language. Sam Altman came and asked me several years ago, hey, could they train on O'Reilly content? And I went, when you have a way to compensate our authors, you know, <laughs> of course, that's an issue today. So one of the arguments for the open source models is it gives people who have some kind of content that they don't want to give away more control. And, and that goes back again to open source. I remember Michael Tiemann, uh, who you may remember from Cygnus Solutions back in the day, and then Red Hat, he once said, what we sell at Red Hat is control. We tell companies, you know, when you use our products, you have control over your products. And that's the dynamic that's playing out right now. Like, okay, if I use ChatGPT or if I use Bard or if I use Claude, how much control do I have versus if I use Llama, Alpaca and derivatives? And so open source is less about the, do I have access to all the source code? And, and more about, do I have control? In this case, it's control over what happens to the data I train it with? Am I having to give up my data in order to train with my data or, or can I keep my data? And again, this yeah. goes back to a fundamental idea that I've had. And this goes back to when we, we were working with open documentation licenses. And there were a lot of people who were religious about why you, you open source all your books. And I go, because we would have fewer books. And my goal is to have as many useful books as possible. And there's cases where I have an author who says, I'll only do this if I'll make X much money. And I have to say, well, what's the way that I can make you more money? You know, and so we did some books when authors didn't care. They wanted just to get it out there. We did books with open licenses. In other cases, Send Mail being a notorious exception. We'd gone through five authors who'd failed on it. We had a guy who was like, okay, I'll write this book. But he was very much wanted to you know, make his living at it. He was going to devote two years to writing it. Eric Coleman actually rewrote Send Mail because Frank Ostales was finding so many problems in the version he was documenting. Is this easy to rewrite the software? That line of thinking, Tim, goes to the question, which seems like a central question around incentives. You have these incredibly vibrant and kind of rich open source ecosystems that have been instantiated over the last few decades versus, let's say, Microsoft, where there's a very clear revenue model that supports the production of that software. Do you think it's, is, is that important? to understand the incentive structures around open source? I guess I would say the, the, th the way I think about that again is, first of all, open source is an ethos. And I remember I wrote a piece many years ago called Open Source and the Obligation to Recycle, which is you built something, how do you get it out there and make it useful even when it's not useful to you anymore? One of the things that's sort of sad about the commercial software world, this is a lot of stuff that's kept proprietary, even though it's no, you know, it's no longer useful to the people who created it. And they should be going, how do, how do we give this away? So anyway, I, I guess I would just say that there's a lot of opportunity for us to be thoughtful about what we want 
to have happen. And what I want to have happen is more value created for the world. What I want is for problems to be solved. I look at many of the internet companies that are uh, proprietary companies like you know Google and even Amazon. Yes, they've done some open source, but my God, they've created enormous value for people. And so, and even Microsoft created enormous value. You got to give them credit for all the things they did do right back in the day, and they're still doing. I wrote a piece many years ago called Information Wants to be Valuable. I, I started talking about Pearl, Larry Wall versus Bill Gates, and both of them were just trying to make their software valuable. And Bill Gates had one way to do it. He figured out that he could basically sell the stuff and make a really big, successful company. And Larry Wall was, I'm not that kind of guy, but I can give it away. And both of them had this big influence. Tim Berners-Lee, my gosh, he gave away this stuff and it really worked. And again, that's one of the Pearl slogans back in the day. There's more than one way to do it. Yep. yep. And, and so everybody who says, oh, everything should be open source, you go, no, th there's a lot of times when there are legitimate reasons uh, for things to be proprietary. But just to go back to our experience with free documentation licenses, this is in the early days of Linux. It was one book we did, and we put it out with a free documentation license. Two or three other publishers immediately republished it. So there were four versions of the book in bookstores. And the conclusion that bookstores came to was, oh, this didn't sell that well, so they didn't carry any of it. You know, in some sense, the institutional structure that you're trying to compete within shapes what is the best choice. And one of the reasons why back in the day, open source was not the best choice for books was that basically it divided the market and the, the market was very much like, we're only going to reorder things that sell above a certain level. Whereas on the internet, the, the idea that you could put something out for free and it could just take off, there the market structure really supported it. So if we were to take this forward, what has open source enabled that wasn't previously possible? Everything. You have to look at the, the technology world we live in. And when you think about the internet, internet all effectively open source, open standards too. But many of the, the critical pieces of internet infrastructure were written as open source, often as part of Berkeley Unix, actually. This communications medium that we live in and take for granted was the product of open source. If you were around in the days of proprietary networking, you would remember how crappy that was and how limited. So right there, you have a, a fundamental, just an absolutely foundational technology of the modern world. And you, you just go from there. And, and again, if you look at the continuum, you go, okay, well, here's scientific publishing, the fact that Google develops Transformers and, and publishes a paper on it. And then all these other people and go and explains how it works. And other people go, oh, that's a really cool idea. We can do blah, 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 blah. Science is an open source activity in some sense. Of course, we're trying to make it better as open source by, for example, publishing research protocols, publishing the data that was used to come to the conclusions. So you can kind of take the ideas of open source, which really go back to the very beginnings of the foundations of information dissemination in the modern era, the idea that of copyright and which was and patents, which are designed to actually lead to more diffusion of knowledge. And then, of course, you look at all the corruptions of that, like the fact that, that copyright got extended from 17 years to seven, the life of the author plus 70. The fact that patents, which used to require a working model, and we're supposed to explain the invention so that they would accelerate and they had a short term and it became these legal 
obfuscatory documents that don't actually teach you much of anything about the invention. You can't even figure out sometimes what's being patented. Then you get sued over it. You go, okay, so this thing got perverted. Interesting. Are the incentives in our current market structure that make idealistic companies turn bad? Taking this notion of creating or enabling value or transformation or sharing of knowledge further from open source, how do you view the impact of open source on businesses or business models? Uh, again, this was something uh, that used to get me a lot of ire from the open, from true people who were religious open source advocates, where I basically pointed out pretty early on that open source licenses were originally designed for an era where in order to run so- a piece of software, you had to have the code on your machine. And I literally had an argument with Richard Stallman, where he said, like Amazon, didn't matter because it wasn't running on like on his machine. But I go, yeah, that's exactly why it does matter because we're changing the paradigm when you have what I call actually Dave Stutz from Microsoft originally called software above the level of a single device. Then all of a sudden, and then it became software as a service. It undercut the whole world in some ways in which open source and free software were born as narrowly defined because you no longer had to have access to the source code. In many cases, you couldn't even have access to the source code. As I pointed out very early on, that if, if you gave Richard Stallman all the Amazon source code, it would be useless to him or all the Google source code because this was actually a business processes embodied in software. And you have to be, you know, it's this idea of software as an activity rather than software as an artifact. In the PC era, and before that, software literally was an artifact, and it isn't an artifact anymore. It's something different. And and so I guess all all I'm saying is that these narrow categories that we put it in can limit our thinking. What we really want to do is say, well, well, first of all, what enables human flourishing? Is this thing enabling human flourishing? Why is it not doing that? What are the incentives that are wrong? What are the incentives that are right? And you basically look at traditions like open source that that teach you something important and valuable about that, and you, you figure out what, what, what that's good for. We started off a little bit on this trajectory or arc of talking about the evolution, the history of open source. And we like to spend some time on that now. Open source software was, in the early days of computers, most software was effectively open source. This is all bespoke, all requiring access to the source code. And industry control was exerted through hardware. And the, the need for open source really only came after the Justice Department consent decree with IBM where they could no longer control the industry that way. And, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, software became a battle. Well, first of all, there were independent software vendors. The software became a battleground. The software became something that was valuable in its own right and sold separately, at, at which point there started to be battles over software and, and access to the source code. And I guess I would say the traditional narrative in which it's this invention by Richard Stallman I just never rang true to me because I started working with Berkeley Unix before the Free Software Foundation had even been created. And it had all of the characteristics uh, that later were ascribed to Linux. 
and it was in this licensing regime where AT&T was competing with IBM and had just had this permissive license, university license that situation. So I, I guess all I'm saying is I would say that that tradition was pretty well established before Richard went on his proprietary software as evil. I also remember Kurt McCusick, who had taken over at Berkeley Unix from Bill Joy, once saying, yeah, Richard has this idea of it. Copyright is evil, and so we need to have copy left, which is different. He said, here at Berkeley, we just say, take our software down to Copy Central and copy it. (laughs) (laughs) The Berkeley people were clearly a a big part of my introduction. Also, the X-Window system, where I had some battles. This is in in 88. Basically, they had put out a, a demonstration version of the software, but their goal literally was to have Companies build their own proprietary versions. They're going, hey, we're a university. We just showed what's possible. Go and prove this. And and then we did the same thing with the documentation. And there were some people who said, oh, your documentation should be free. And Bob Bob Scheifler, who was the director of the X Consortium, said, no, you're doing exactly what we wanted. You're taking stuff that we gave as a starting point, and you're raising the bar, and you're improving it. That's what we want. And, and that led me to one of my goals, certainly in my relationship to open source, was always like, what's the intention of the author? How do we respect that? And what's their strategy for disseminating their work? And, and, and what are their goals? And, 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 and trying to respect that. Because again, the, the, the yeah, incentivizing and rewarding the act of creation on the terms that the author seeks is, is the thing that I really care about. Is there a company which you feel has best executed the open source strategy? I would probably say Google. That's in this, the true open source strategy. Google and Amazon, really, if you look at them as pioneers, and this was back in the day, again, I got a lot of uh, pushback from open source advocates when I said, well, look, the, the right way to do this and this was you know, my path from open source advocate to web 2.0 advocate, I was just like, hey, when one thing becomes proprietary, something else becomes open and valuable. And when something becomes open and, and commoditized, something else becomes valuable. And that led me down the path of, okay, so in this new world, it's going to be data that becomes the source of proprietary advantage. And so Google and Amazon totally executed on what's the game plan for open source is to build services with it. And deliver those services at scale. And, and that was the next era. That's why most of the companies that were pure play open source companies are relatively small compared to these next generation giants that built on top of it and built this new free layer where they gave services away. They didn't necessarily give their source code away, but when they did it well, they were open. And like you think about Google Maps, it was originally, here's this proprietary new approach, but it was actually, it was hackable pretty easily. You could see the JavaScript. People started hacking it. They started building mashups, uh, so-called. And what did Google do? They went, oh, wait, wait, sorry, let's make that easier for you. And same thing with Amazon. I showed them where all the scraping we were doing. I said, give us an API. And, and, and they did. But that was the first generation of Amazon Web Services. Nothing to do with what really later became, where it was a much more well-architected platform play, but you look at the value that was created by the new platforms these companies made. I mean, yeah, so you don't have access to the source code for Google Maps, but you can put a map on any site and for many, for many, totally free. And you got the charge for stuff, but like, wow, what a, what a great gift. You look at Amazon Web Services and 
how revolutionary it was with S3 and EC2, the first services. Yeah second generation where suddenly people could write software that was running on thousands of machines without having to buy the machines. In the early days of open source, like what would be this great expansion of the ability to use computers and to develop innovative applications? You would probably put you know, Amazon Web Services right up there in the Pantheon along with the web and with Linux. So as I'm saying, you know, if you kind of look for the right through line, which is access the computing, access to the resources and the capabilities, then open source narrowly defined is relatively small compared to I mean, a big important part of it. But you kind of look at there's again, this this is more than one way to do it. The fact that chips became proprietary but commodities was incredibly important. And then the fact that operating systems became open and commodities. The, the fact that the operating systems were commoditized is more important than that they were open. Yep, exactly. You know? And so the commoditization, I once gave a talk, this would have been before, probably about 97, 98, right? I, it was called the three C's of open sourcing. It was commoditization, community, and collaboration, I think. That is spot on. We spoke about a for-profit organization doing good with executing on open source strategy. Executing both on open source strategy, i.e. building on top of it, but also creating services that were open enough that they ignited a huge wave of innovation and, and value creation for other people. Got it. And is there a nonprofit organization which you can think of, which may have done a similar contribution? Wikipedia was, they, they effectively were kind of an open source play for the development of useful documents, mostly this encyclopedia. In some ways, we wonder if we don't talk about it as much, but how many of the side projects that big open source figures are known for, like in the case of Larry Wall in the early days, people were sending around source code and patch allowed you to basically just send around a little clip of the part that needed to change. It was basically built on top of diff. Well, then Linus Torvalds, Git, you know, yep. Git and then GitHub played an enormous role, probably as important as Linux. Yeah. That's almost a master template for how you share software today. That is true. You remember the days when it was like there were all these proprietary distributions. You know, so again, this that alternation of free and proprietary. So Red Hat was a proprietary distribution of free software. Let's talk culture, Tim. You mentioned the open source ethos, and we're curious to hear how you think about open source and the way it has influenced culture within the technology industry and even beyond as well, sort of more popular culture, mainstream culture. But let me let's start with how you perceive open source, the ethos of open source, how that has influenced culture within the technology industry. Well, I think the ethos part is maybe there was a period when I think that the, the ideals of free and sharing in the early days of the internet and the early days of open source was really, there was a really powerful ethos, but, but that's really been long overshadowed by the Silicon Valley, let's get rich ethos. I don't think that that's, it, it, there's still kind of a hacker culture here, but I guess I always see this alternation of these periods of innovation and openness 
and then people trying to capture the value. And they, they, it's this long, it's a 20, 30 year cycle. And you see this new idealism around some of the companies who are doing AI today. Because again, in the idealism is a powerful way to grow the market, to capture the market. And then if somebody comes in and tries to capture and close off the market. And so it's, I'm just saying, it's just, it's a sine wave. And, and hopefully it's a sine wave with a, an ascending uh, slope. But the thing that I would say more important than the ethos was the almost like hacker celebrity culture that programmers became superstars and open source was a, a very powerful way to do that. If you were a singer, you have a hit song. If you're a software developer, you have a hit piece of software, you're a celebrity. So the visibility of your of people's work and the transparency, yeah, you could see who is a good programmer by looking at the codes that they put up on GitHub. Yeah, that's that's a profound change in computer in, in culture. And then I, I think that the probably the other piece that I would say has been really significant is that we have a bigger and bigger library of capabilities. And that that's both the result of open source, but also the death of open source, right? Because in some sense, we're increasingly assembling pieces of code that we, we don't actually understand. We just have to trust and rely on. And that's not that different from what happened. You know, yes, you can dig in if you want to, but like when you're using 15 different libraries in your code and you're writing a big complex piece of software, which is way more complex than you used to be able to write, right? Because you're relying on this work of other people. A lot of those things are opaque to you. So I guess I would say that the value of having enormous amounts of of reusable software. I mean, I think that's, I guess, maybe the thing I, I'm getting at is one of the things that open source did is it really made software more reusable. But now there's reusability via APIs and things are more isolated. So you get many benefits, but you can't, you don't get all the benefits necessarily. Like you go, I want to understand that or I want to change it in some way. So there's always trade-offs. Do you feel like the open source ethos has meaningfully influenced popular culture? Oh, or at some point in time, it has. At some point in time, it definitely did. And of course, those, those echoes reverberate down the ages. I, I do think, you just look at, for example, open access science publishing. That's a child of open source that's still, you know, is transforming an industry that was very closed and very limiting. And that story is not over. I think open source is part of that long narrative. I think going back to the open source influencing culture, do you have a point of view of how the software even gets created in these big companies and how that may have been influenced by the open source culture and the training the engineers are going through while they're studying? Well, certainly I would say open source you know, has changed the game in a fundamental way. In the sense that like, if you're in a big company like uh, Google or Microsoft, you have all of the benefits of open source, even for your proprietary. You're operating in the same way with the same tools as you would be with open source, right? So you have these companies with tens or hundreds of thousands of engineers. Uh, that's probably bigger than any external open source community. There's nothing in external internet scale open source collaboration that probably matches the size of some of the teams at some of these companies that are collaborating on a shared a massive piece of code. <laughs> open source is just the way it's done today. 
let's talk a little about how you see the main tensions right now in open source. I think LLMs and generative AI is definitely part of that conversation. Maybe we'll start more broadly. How do you think about the main tensions in open source currently? Um, I don't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about what you mentioned earlier around proprietary large language models and open large language models. What's your point of view on that dynamic? I think that the game is still afoot, as Sherlock Holmes used to say. I think that this question of whether AI is going to be large, centralized, and owned by a couple of companies is a profoundly important question. While it's true that the training costs are coming down, I, I, I believe that fine-tuning open source models is looking to be a source of competition for the big guys. And I think that's, I guess, maybe one important role for open sources as a kind of competitive pressure. One of the key axes of control is can you invent the next thing on top of it? And if you look at the way you have a real paradigm shift, it's usually by somebody going sideways from the current regime because there's too much control in the hands of a few people. So in the days of IBM's dominance, it was the personal computers and the personal computer software, which was, you know, was where all this amazing innovation happened and broke the market into a new direction and commoditized computing and made it available for everybody. And then Microsoft owns everything, controls everything, makes it impossible for, tells the VCs where they can invest and where they can't. And it's really the only company that can decide what's going to happen. Innovation just isn't really happening in that traditional software ecosystem. And everybody kind of goes, ah, what the hell? Let's go and play with this internet thing where nobody knows how to make money, but it's fun, it's cool. Let's do that. And sure enough, they invent something radically new. And I think we were getting to that same stage with the dominance of four or five big tech companies, everything from the web to mobile. And, and then suddenly you get this AI breakthrough coming from what was originally a nonprofit and open AI. The thing that's exciting to me is that what history teaches us is that, yes, eventually the profit motive causes technologies to close down and make innovation less possible. And guess what? It bursts out somewhere else because it can't be denied. The human desire to explore and express and make new things breaks out in some new form. There's a rich interplay of business models. There's a rich interplay of strategies. And they can all work in one way or another. And, and of course, there's bad behavior. And bad behavior is usually trying to restrict other people from uh, doing certain things or exploring certain things. Where has open source failed? It's kind of an interesting question because I, I don't, I mean, there's this great poem that I've always loved. I, I first used it in a talk I gave called Why I Love Hackers back in, I think it was 2007 or 8. I ended the talk with this poem. It's about Jacob wrestling with the angel, which is a story from the Old Testament. And Rilke's poem, which of course is, and I've only read translated from the German, so I feel I, I can just be pretty loose with my own retranslation of the translation. He says, what we fight with is so small. And when we win, it makes us small. 
What we want is to be defeated decisively by successively greater beings. And that idea of fighting with big, hard things and not winning is what we want. And so the fact is, open source didn't, if you remember, there was a time when it was like, we are going to replace Microsoft. And it didn't happen. Is that a failure or is that a success? There was this struggle with the profit motive. There was a struggle with this desire to own things. And it, and it had this amazing transformative effect on everything. If you're a hardcore open source or die kind of advocate, you go, that's a failure. I go, that's an enormous success. What we want is to be defeated decisively. The things that were built on top of open source are so much greater than the vision of the original open source advocates. Except maybe Tim Berners-Lee, who didn't really have a vision. He was just like, I'm giving this shit away. I want people to be able to collaborate and communicate. It is the building block for what we do today. So in the yeah, end, exactly. in the end, we can say depends on how we count victories and outcomes, I think. That's right. Well, and if our goal is simply to make good things happen for other people, yeah. there are a lot of ways to do that. And the path that says, well, there's only one way to do that. You must do it my way is actually a betrayal of open source. <laughs> because it, 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 it's to me, there's a, a gift culture aspect to open source. Like, you know, again, I go back to Larry Wall, who was one of my kind of the people who helped shape my thinking about open source. I asked him why he gave away Perl before that RN and other software he wrote. And he says, I got so much great stuff for free. I want to give something back. Uh, there's a book uh, that everybody should read. It, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but aspirationally, it's fantastic. It's called uh, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow. And it's basically looking, fresh look at our story about human civilization and the notion that somehow hierarchy and control are the natural way of things. And basically kind of looks at all these, the evidence that a lot of early civilizations were not that way. They were egalitarian. But they didn't last. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Why are we making the choices that we're making as a society? And we're in that one of those moments again today where we go, okay, yeah, we've been celebrating the ability of capitalism to create wealth. And then you go, yeah, but that wealth is incredibly concentrated. And is that really a good thing? Is that what we want? And the idea that I guess I would trace back to open source is that we want a world in which people are free to try to make things, uh, to make the vision that they want. It's not, strictly speaking, closed source or closed end. It's just like other people who are trying to keep you from that, that fundamental freedom. That's where I do really like a lot of what Richard contributed, this idea that these, there are fundamental freedoms, the freedom to create, the freedom to share. You know, these are human goals and human aspirations, and we should want to support that in some ways, open source is, is, is one part of the science of what works about that and what doesn't work. Yeah, the permissionless innovation part, I think, is, yeah. is very important. Let's talk about your current projects, Tim. Anything exciting you're working on right now? Well, I'm working on a project with Mariana Mazzucato, who's a an economist at University College London. She has an, an institute called the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Obviously sounds like something right up my alley. And we got a grant from Omidyar to research what we're calling algorithmic rents. 
because we, we, we talk a lot about labor and capital, but in the classical economists actually had three factors. Yeah, we've combined capital and rent in, in our minds. In, in the early days when, for example, owning land was the source of wealth, you got, say, a farmer who's working the land. You have maybe a capitalist who's providing money to build a mill. And then you have the landowner who's sitting there collecting rent. <laughs> you know? and, and, and that's still true today. Companies collect rents. And a lot of our institutions for intellectual property are actually the creation of rents. Why are generic drugs a tenth of the price of proprietary drugs? Because guess what? There's a huge rent in there. If it were just return on capital, wouldn't be so much. Why is housing so expensive? Because effectively, we're all rentiers. Whenever we own stock and it grows without us doing anything, we're rentiers. But anyway, I'm we're trying to develop a theory of rent for markets in which things are given away for free. How do you have rent? How does it work? And so we've been looking at companies like Google and Amazon and, and going, oh, okay, wait a minute. What's actually happening is these are two-sided markets. And on one side, there's money. On the other side, where everything's given away for free, the currency is attention. They control our attention in order to have attention to resell to people on the money side of the platform. The idea is that we're, we're formulating is this idea of attention rents and how they're extracted from users. And some of this, we, we've kind of rediscovered the work of Herbert Simon, who was a pioneering computer scientist, economist, political scientist. And he was the one who said, well, what does information consume? Well, that's quite obvious. It consumes attention. And, and he predicted in 1970, he said, in the future, we're going to be living in, we're living in a, a world of information abundance. Attention will be scarce. And we will have to have machines that will help us ration our attention. And we suddenly go, oh, wait, that's the fundamental, what these internet program platforms ultimately deliver. Google promises, wow, we'll build all these algorithms that show you what, is really best for you. Amazon, we're going to help you go through millions of products. Social media, we're going to let you see updates from just your friends. And, like there, and there's millions of people posting. We'll let you see just your friends. And so that's the initial promise of every internet platform is we will actually save you. We will we'll help you regulate your attention and save your time. And then they become platforms where they go, actually, we're going to take some of that attention back. We're going to, we're going to show you addictive content that makes you spend more time on social media. Or in the case of Amazon, we're going to show you ads or Google. We're going to show you ads, which used to be like on Google, they were a complement to uh, organic results. Here are the results that we think are best for you. But guess what? There may be, this is an alternate way to surface stuff you might not know about, or that's a, a commercial product that's adjacent to a free product. It's a complement to it. But then they go, no, actually, we're going to put our ads in front of the organic results. So you look at a site like Yelp is a, is a great example of this. They like to bang on Google. But the fact is they have totally replaced their organic search results with ads. Now it's like the first 10 results are ads. And then you have to scroll way down before you see any organic results at all. Yeah. And so you have these companies who built these markets. And then they go, actually, you know what? We're not going to show you that anymore. We're going to actually show you the stuff that somebody's willing to pay us to show you. And that's, that's the, the kind of thing we're exploring and documenting. And like right now, we're working on a big paper about Amazon that is just as a demonstration project. Because of course, Amazon went from no ads to suddenly, literally there are, you know, on a typical page, there are 20 ads and four organic results. And so basically the merchant just gets charged an extra, an extra fee. Yep. Uh, 
there's no in, in in you know economic theory advertising is good because it provides information that wouldn't otherwise be there and so you learn about new things but if you look at amazon it's this great case study and there's no new information yeah. because the organic result is is there and then there's the ad <laughs> There are five questions in the rapid fire round here. I'll start. What motivates you? I, I like to think I, I'm leaving things better than I found them. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? Uh, I guess I would say it's probably not a non-consensus view, but I hold near and dear the idea that, um, as I once said, money is uh, like gas in your car. Money in a business is like gas in your car. You know, when you go on a road trip, it's not a tour of gas stations. <laughs> what or who had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? Probably this guy, George Simon, who I met when I was 14 years old. He introduced me to general semantics with its famous aphorism, the map is not the territory, and its idea that you had to step back and sort of observe your process of abstraction and not live in the abstractions and go back to what you were looking at. What are you currently reading? Well, right now I'm reading quite a few books. I just finished Economics for the Common Good by Jean Tabol. I'm reading a novel called The Parrot's Wife. I've always been a Hemingway fan. I just saw the book in a little free library and went, oh, that's about Hadley Richardson. I should read it. I'm reading Steinbeck's Diaries that he wrote while he was writing East of Eden, which is a truly remarkable book. The last question, who is the most original thinker of our time? That's a really tough question. I wouldn't say the most original thinker because there are all kinds of amazing original thinkers in, who are inventors and making yeah. new ideas. But somebody who I, I've read who may, has made me think is this guy, David Graeber, who died a few years ago, unfortunately. He was just kind of reframing and rethinking things that everybody sort of takes for granted. He's very good at that. And the other person I'm reading right now, again, not alive right now, but I'm impressed by Herbert Simon. We went from reading that just that quote to reading his book, Administrative Behavior, which he wrote back in the 70s. And it's, you know, this whole idea that human cognition is shaped by our institutions is profound. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company, or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.